0: Well, sadly, this morning, um, Becky's not able to be with us to see Alex get baptized, and Harold is uh, with her at the hospital, and we're, of course, we're praying for a speech. Is he here? He's here? All right. He made it. Becky, if you're watching online, we miss you. We wish you could be here, um, and uh, hopefully, you're able to see things clearly as, as the day progresses. I was going to say, if Harold's not here, then, then Nan, you have to be the amen side of the... Uh, of the, the congregation this morning, Tiny, you too, feel free. So, Second Peter uh, chapter one verses twenty to twenty one says, "But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God." This passage describes to us how it was that God used his prophets to write and proclaim his word and and his will to to their hearers. The ESV version of the Bible says that they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And this morning, part of what I want you to see is that God's Holy Spirit still carries us along as believers. Not in the sense that we are authoring scripture or new revelation from God. Because the Scriptures that we have here are fully sufficient. And it's our duty to know them. And it's our duty to teach them. And it's our duty to obey them. But the Spirit still moves us. In such a way today, so as to draw our attention to Particular aspects of his word that we need to focus on at different times in our lives Jesus when he was describing the work of the Holy Spirit to his disciples in John 14 verse 26 said The helper the Holy Spirit Whom the Father will send in my name He will teach you all things and he will bring to your remembrance all that I said to you And we often don't recognize when the Spirit is reminding us of things We often don't recognize his leading, sadly, in our lives. But sometimes the evidence of that leading is so profound that we need to just pause and acknowledge it and ready ourselves to receive what he's bringing to our remembrance and give him glory and thanksgiving that he is still mindful of us and that he still lovingly carries us along. Today's one of those instances when I can't help but recognize his leading. Back in early November, Pastor John, Pastor Eddie, Matt, and myself, we met on a Saturday morning to create a calendar for 2023. And we each brought our personal calendars. We brought the calendar of events that happened for the whole church. Um, We brought the calendar of events for the Trail Life Troop so that we could create a unified schedule for worship and for sermons and for Sunday school so that we could reference that all throughout the rest of the year, just to organize things ahead of time. And we've, by and large, stuck to that schedule with just a few adjustments along the way. But back in November, um, back in November, we knew, um, for the most part, when we would be preparing to teach or preach and lead worship. We didn't know exactly where we'd be in the text. We just knew we'd be picking up where we left off the weeks before. John was going through Hebrews, we knew that. Eddie was going through the Sermon on the Mount, we knew that. I was going through Colossians, we knew that. I just happened to be on the schedule for today. But God knew so much more than our calendars that day. He didn't divulge to us back then that He was working on the hearts and minds of some of our young ones to trust in His Son by faith. Back on the morning of Thursday, April 6th, Eddie, John, and myself received an email from Melissa saying, Nina approached me today and expressed her desire to be baptized. She said that when she went to bed last night, she was up for half an hour thinking about it. The next evening, on Good Friday, I was out in the lobby after the service talking to some of the kids And the Alquist girls were all sitting on the bench out there. And after a few minutes of joking around with them, Coraline very nervously... I remember this. It was so funny. uh, Very nervously indicated to me that she and her sisters would like to get baptized. So I began talking to Liz about all of this. But then something else happened right around that time as well. The Sunday afternoon preceding the girls talking to their moms about baptism, Alex Shook went to a passion play with his parents over at Landmark Baptist. And uh, upon seeing the suffering of Jesus in that play, he told his mother Ashley later that afternoon that he was convicted in his heart and he wanted to become a Christian. And so he received Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior that Sunday, April the 2nd. Buddy and Ashley that next Sunday told me that Alex would like to be baptized as well. So God's Spirit was at work, and we give him praise for for all of these things. So, with these expressed desires to be baptized, Eddie, John, and myself met with each of the children individually with their parents um, and interviewed them about their faith and about their understanding of baptism. What does it mean? And we began looking at the calendar yet again for a Sunday opportunity to baptize these children when they would all be present and the body could be mostly present. And the first week we could get on the schedule was today, April the 30th. It's also the day that Joel's parents happen to be in town from Minnesota. Welcome, guys. With all of that said, let's just read the passage that we arrive at today and marvel at how God's Spirit carries us along. Colossians two eleven to 15 says this, And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in the remo- removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead." When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. So our path forward today, as we go through these verses in Colossians, is I want to talk about the two physical symbols that are listed in this passage. If you're taking notes, you can jot these down. They're in verses 11 and 12, the two physical symbols, circumcision and baptism. And then the next thing I want to do is I want to talk about the three spiritual realities that these communicate in verses 13 to 15, and they are resurrection, forgiveness, and triumph. All of these symbols and realities are bestowed when we believe the gospel at the cross, at the tomb, in his resurrection. Last week in the sermon on verses 8 to 10, I indicated that this section of Colossians is where Paul deals head on with the Colossian heresy that was threatening that church fellowship. And I told you that there were four characteristics in the text that describes in some detail what that heresy was. It was human philosophy, legalism, mysticism, and asceticism. And last week we discussed the first of those, human philosophy. Paul in verses 9 and 10 presented Jesus in contrast to the emptiness and incompleteness of human philosophy. Jesus is fully God. And those who are in Christ are completed or filled in such a way that no human philosophy could ever compare or could ever fill a human being. Today, Paul just begins to discuss that second characteristic of the Colossian heresy. That's legalism. But he only hints at it. So we won't dig in too deeply into that aspect of the heresy until a later sermon in a few weeks. In these verses before us today, Paul is expanding upon that theme of the Christian's completeness or their fullness that they have in Christ. And just as I want your faith to be strengthened this morning by seeing the Spirit working behind the scenes in our little fellowship here, the Apostle Paul was also concerned with something behind the scenes working in the lives of the Colossians. The thing behind the symbols. The spiritual realities behind the symbols. And so here are the two physical symbols. Let's start with the first one. Circumcision, verse 11. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Most of you know circumcision was a covenant sign given to Abraham back in Genesis 17. It was the common practice of Israel ever since that time to circumcise every male Hebrew baby on the eighth day after their birth. And the removal of a small section of skin on the male's most intimate part Symbolized that mankind was born sinful and required cleansing at the deepest level of their being. The practice of circumcision was a prerequisite. It was a condition that had to happen ahead of time that had to be met in order to be included in the covenant relationship between God and His people, Israel. And it was also an initiatory rite required for those who later on in life would become proselytes. In other words, those who were non-Jewish, Gentile people who converted to Judaism of their own choice, they were required to undergo the, the painful ritual of circumcision. But the outward ritual, even though it was required, it was not really what God desired of His people in an ultimate sense. The outward symbol only pointed to the thing that God really desired for His people. What God really desired from His people was heartfelt, whole being, love, and devotion for Himself, and obedience to His commands from a desire to please God, the God that they loved. Moses said to the people in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. Later in the history of the Hebrews, Jeremiah the prophet pleads with sinful Judah to repent and to turn to the Lord from the heart. In chapter 4, verse 4, he says, circumcise yourselves to the Lord and remove the foreskins of your heart, men of Judah, and inhabitants of Jerusalem, or else my wrath will go forth like fire and burn, with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. Paul is calling this practice of circumcision to mind for the Colossians. That audience that was in the city of Colossae, telling them that in him, or in Jesus, they had received this circumcision of the heart that God so desired. And we can tell he does not mean the ritual practice itself of physical circumcision. Because he says that the one one that they received was a circumcision made without hands. It was not something that they could do to themselves or to another, or not something that that another could do for themselves. It was a surgery of sorts, a spiritual surgery performed by Jesus himself upon their hearts. It was the circumcision of Christ. In other words, it was performed by Christ in the hearts of those in the Colossian church who had received Christ back in chapter 2, verse 6. But similar to the physical circumcision, this spiritual surgery was also an amputation of sorts. It's described as the removal of the body of flesh. And to understand what Paul means by this phrase, we need to consider other passages where he has used these in similar terms. And when we do this study, you can check me on this later in your own study because we don't have a whole lot of time to dig into it, but it becomes apparent that Paul is referring to mankind's sinful nature when he talks about this. He describes that natural propensity and bent toward sin as the flesh in numerous other passages. And like I said, we don't have time to consider all of them or even multiple instances of those. But Paul in, in this passage in Colossians is stating that when the Colossians received Christ, that old fallen human nature that dominated them before they were in Christ has been amputated. It's been cut off. We'll just turn to just one parallel passage. In Romans chapter 6, verse 6, Paul says, Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him. In order that our body of sin, in other words, the body of the flesh that he says in Colossians, might be done away with so that we no longer need to be slaves to sin. So, do you see the parallels between what he said in Romans and what he says here in Colossians? The circumcision performed by Christ upon believers removes their sin nature and it frees them from slavery to sin. They're new creations. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, so that this body that we still live in no longer has to be an instrument of sin. It can now become an instrument of righteousness. The sin nature no longer dominates, and the body, after conversion, adapts to new purposes and functions. Romans 12, verses 1 to 2 says, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living and holy sacrifices, acceptable to God which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's move on, though, to the second physical symbol. Paul, in describing this circumcision of the heart performed by Christ, happened. He indicates that this circumcision, spiritual circumcision, happened in conjunction with the Colossians' baptism. Verse 12, "...having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead." Paul draws their minds back to their baptism. Similar to the Jewish initiatory rite of circumcision, baptism in the New Testament is also very clearly an initiatory rite. In other words, it happens at or near a person's conversion to Christ. When baptisms occur in the early church record of the book of Acts, they always happen when a person comes to faith in Christ. In fact, on the very day that they believe. In the epistles, when baptism is mentioned, it's always assumed, it's always understood that those reading the letter had already been baptized. Just like here in Colossians 2. Paul assumes that all of his Christian readers have already been baptized. It was adopted as an initiatory rite early in the church. And we should still practice it as such today. But the question is, two questions really, how do we view baptism rightly? And how do we perform this symbol of baptism rightly? So let me answer those questions quickly. Let's consider first how we view baptism. What is the importance of baptism today? And the first thing we need to understand about baptism is that it is a physical symbol or practice similar to the practice of circumcision that is supposed to point to a deeper spiritual reality. Just like God's primary concern in the Old Testament was a person's heart posture toward Him, the same is absolutely true today. God is concerned with the spiritual reality behind baptism. And as this verse shows, baptism symbolizes our identification with and participation in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. It's an acting out of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4. Doug just shared this in Sunday school. Paul describes the gospel in this passage in the simplest of terms. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Baptism portrays death. It portrays burial. It portrays resurrection. Back to that other parallel passage in Romans, In chapter 6, verses 3 to 5, Paul says this, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Now, some Christians believe that no salvation can occur apart from this symbolic act. They believe that the act of baptism itself is the point at which this spiritual circumcision is done by Christ. Therefore, to neglect in their mind, they would say, to neglect or delay the baptism of a new believer is to endanger their soul to hell for not having fully and truly received Christ until they've submitted to baptism. And this understanding is problematic for three reasons, okay? Let me explain these very quickly for three reasons. And the first one is this. It minimizes the primary importance of faith in securing salvation. It minimizes the primary importance of faith, and it makes it less than or equal to the importance of baptism. Even in this verse, Paul enshrines the importance of faith in securing salvation. You were raised up with him through faith, he says, in the working of God. Not through baptism. You were raised up through faith. The baptism pictures that. Romans 1:17 says this: for in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. That's the NIV translation. Galatians chapter 3, verse 2 says this. And this Galatians is all about people who legalistically want to apply the, the right of circumcision to Christians back in the early church. And Paul argues against it, and he says this to them. He asks them this poignant question in Galatians 3.2. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? In other words, did you receive the Spirit by working the works of the law, or did you receive it when you believed what you heard? When you believe the gospel. The second reason it's problematic to view baptism itself as essential for salvation is this. It simply trades one legalistic ritual for another. Just one legalistic ritual for another. Instead of circumcision, it's now baptism. And why would Paul do that? Why would he do that? Indeed, you look at the whole corpus of what he taught and wrote, and it's that salvation is through faith in the gospel. Not of works, so that no one can boast. And when we review, when we view baptism in a in a legalistic sense like that, it becomes another work that we believes that we believe is, is salvific. This is problematic. The third reason that is problematic is this view ignores the spiritual and internal emphasis of both verse eleven and verse twelve in Colossians. Just like 11 emphasized the without human hands importance of spiritual circumcision, verse 12 emphasizes the importance of identifying with him in his death and his burial and his resurrection. The point is not your baptism, it's his death, it's his burial, it's his resurrection. That's what saves. And we apprehend that salvation through faith before we're ever immersed in the water. Why else does Jesus say in his great commission to go first to make disciples of the nations and then once they're they're disciples, then baptize them in his name? Because salvation is by faith from first to last. To get this point wrong will trap you in a New Testament form of legalism. And that's every bit as destructive as the legalism that Paul confronted in Colossians. Does that make sense? Yes. All right. (laughs) All right. Yeah. So, given all that I've said about the importance of faith over and above baptism, it's now important, though, to convey just how important baptism is. Because it is important. Even though faith is of primary importance, baptism is nonetheless still very important. And while we shouldn't view baptism as necessary or essential for salvation, we should view it as necessary for our obedience and our growth. Again, Jesus' last command uttered in Matthew 28 was to baptize those who became disciples and to teach them everything that He commanded, including, in that sentence, to baptize. The command was to baptize. And in addition to His mandate, Jesus also modeled baptism's importance. In Matthew three fourteen to 15, he goes to be baptized by John the Baptist, and John says to him, trying to prevent him, I have need to be baptized by you, and you come to me? And Jesus answered him and said, permit it at this time, for in this way it's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So we have Jesus' mandate, we have Jesus' model, therefore we ought not ignore or minimize in any way the importance of this beautiful ordinance from the Lord. So let's consider then, how we've already seen how we should view baptism, let's now consider how should we rightly practice baptism. And here's the first thing I want to say, it should be as soon as is feasibly possible for a person who professes faith in Christ. This is our New Testament model and the apostolic tradition. Modern day Christianity has deviated from that practice and oftentimes baptisms are separated by a long distance of time between the profession of faith and the obedience to be baptized. I think that's unfortunate. I think the better model is to do it as quickly as you can or as soon as you can when we uh, realize you've come to faith, which is kind of why we bought the baptistry not that long ago. So... It should be administered. Second thing is this. It should be administered only to those who have professed faith in Christ. There are no instances of people being baptized apart from already having placed their faith in Jesus in the New Testament. Some see the close association in this passage before us today of baptism and circumcision as the foundational text for justifying the baptism of infants or babies, and like the infant Hebrews uh, in the Old Testament, the covenant people who were circumcised as infant infants, so now in the New Testament, baptism, in their opinion, becomes the covenant symbol for God's people. This is how they argue that. There aren't examples of children or babies being baptized in the Scriptures, though, so they infer that in the book of Acts, chapter 10. They use the mention of the baptism of the whole household of Cornelius in Acts, chapter 10, to infer that infants were baptized in that instance. But that is not a necessary inference in that passage. And actually, I would argue that it's, it's, it's nothing more than an assumption. Because the text there does not tell us anything directly about the ages of those who were in that household. So to be as biblical as we can, we ought to baptize those who have expressed faith. Paul here in in Colossians, while discussing baptism, includes the importance of the presence of faith in the one entering into the waters of baptism. Much more can be said on on this issue, and I don't want to delve into it any further today, but it's a very worthy topic to dig into. The third way that we should practice baptism rightly is this. It should be by immersion. Not sprinkling, not pouring. Immersion. This is actually the meaning of the root word for baptism. Baptizo, which is to dip or to immerse or to submerge. And it's also the practice that most clearly portrays burial. As Paul states, the act symbolizes here in Colossians. So in short, in summary, let's be as biblical as we can in viewing and practicing baptism. Let's be as biblical as we can Let's not add to the practice nor take away from it. Let's not overemphasize its importance, but let's not in any way underemphasize its importance either. Let's move on. So I handled the two physical symbols. Let's move on to the three spiritual realities, okay? Here are the three spiritual realities. The physical symbol of baptism communicates three very important realities that the believer experiences. And the first one is this, verse 13, resurrection. Resurrection. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him. Resurrection. I remember when I was six or seven years old, one Saturday morning, my parents woke me very early from a deep sleep to inform me that my best friend's older brother who lived next door to us, he was a high school age young man, had died in a car accident the night before. Like I said, I was pretty young, but I had been to funerals before that time. But this was the first funeral that I went to where it was someone that I knew personally and cared about. I had seen him every day. I was literally with my best friend almost every day, and I saw his older brother all the time. So I remember going to that visitation. It was at Charles Young Funeral Home over there in Ross, and seeing my friend... He was only six or seven at the time, standing at the side of the casket of his older brother. I remember vividly seeing him reach out and and pat his brother's shoulder as if he expected him to wake up and to speak to him. But of course he didn't. He was dead. His senses no longer worked. He couldn't feel his touch any longer. He couldn't hear his voice. He couldn't see his face. He couldn't smell his breath as he spoke closely to him over his body. That is what physical death is it's the ultimate loss of the senses. The loss of the ability to respond to physical stimuli. That's what death is. And this is how Paul described the Colossians' spiritual state before they were in Christ. Before they had received Christ Jesus the Lord. Before they had undergone that circumcision performed by Christ on their heart. Before they were saved. They could not respond to any spiritual stimuli. They were deaf to God. They were blind to His working, completely without the ability to apprehend Him or sense Him in any way, completely apart from any understanding of their lostness and emptiness, unable to understand His goodness and His kindness and His holiness. They were dead. And so were all of we before we knew Him. But something happened to them in their deadness. God made them to live again. Something happened to them that connected them with Jesus, and they came back to life with him. Something aroused them from their deadness, and it made their spiritual hearts beat again. What was it? What has that kind of power to awaken the dead and enable them to respond with faith in Jesus? What was it? Guys, it was just this. It was simply the gospel. Amen. Yeah. The gospel message, hear me on this, guys. The gospel message is like a defibrillator used on the spiritual hearts of the dead that bring them back to life again, and it enables them to believe. When the sinner hears the simple message that Jesus died on the cross and was buried for their sins and that He rose again from the grave to save them from the power and the penalty of their sins, it's like a high voltage electric surge that pierces through their spiritual hearts and it makes them beat again. They draw air into their lungs again. They see with new eyes, they hear with new ears. They awaken a brand new creation, knowing and believing in the powerful working of God that saves them. Romans 1:16 says this, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. I don't know how it works. It just does. It just does. It's just the way God designed to save people. Not all people respond, but invariably, whenever the gospel is preached, God uses it to save. First Corinthians 1 Corinthians 1:21 and verses 23 to 24 says, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased that through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. And he says, We preach Christ crucified. To Jews a stumbling block. And to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So, the first spiritual reality, resurrection, is pictured in baptism. Let's move on to the second one. Paul says there's another spiritual reality portrayed in baptism. And it's forgiveness. Forgiveness. Verses 13 and 14. Having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Sorry, I really should have brought a tissue up here this morning. I'll just use my jacket. Sorry. Oh, Tiny's got one for me. Thank you, ma'am. awkward (laughs) all right don't worry I'll wash them in the baptistry later (laughs) all right the second spiritual reality sorry about that Um, forgiveness right the Colossians were forgiven When, when they were raised to walk in newness of life After having died with Christ and been buried with Christ, the old life of sin was left behind. God would remember their sins against them no more. They were forgiven. Can I tell you how glad that my past is forgiven by God? My past is is colored with all sorts of things that I'm ashamed of. Perversion I engaged in. Cruelty I took part in, unwholesomeness that I regret, rebellion that deserves severe punishment and it's all forgiven. God will hold none of it against me anymore because I'm in Christ. Paul uses uh, two metaphors here in this verse. Verse to describe that forgiveness. And he says, the first thing he mentions is a certificate of debt. Our sin, like the Colossians, is comprised of transgressions against God's decrees. That's what decrees stands for. It stands for God's laws. And our lives are comprised with transgressions against God's decrees, as it says here. Each time we would sin and break God's holy law, we deepen our indebtedness. And the sense is that we sign with our own hands this IOU statement of indebtedness. Okay, I'll pay for this sin later. I'll pay for that sin later. So on and so forth. Every day, racking up deeper debt. And the indebtedness in, in the Roman sense that Paul was using it here was more akin to the, the debt to society that criminals would pay when they, punished, or their, when they were punished for their crimes. Specifically, those who were guilty of capital crimes... When they were put to death via crucifixion, they would have a document that was affixed to the top of their cross, listing their crimes for which they were being executed. And this document or plaque was called a titulus. Jesus had a titulus affixed to his cross, which read, King of the Jews. There was no crime or no sin that could be written on his, other than his being the King of the Jews. And this forgiveness that Jesus offers is a, a cancellation of that certificate of debt. That word for canceled was used when describing the, the wiping off of, of writing on a papyrus or an, or, or an eraser of sorts, like a slate or blackboard that's wiped clean. Your criminal record is erased, it's gone. You have a clean slate when you are in Christ. But the cancellation of that debt to society, ultimately to God, can only occur because Jesus took that penalty for the crimes you committed upon Himself. And in that sense, when Jesus was nailed to the cross, so was the record of your sin and my sin that was hostile to us. It was against us. It condemned us. Because Jesus was treated as guilty and condemned on that cross, you can be treated as innocent and saved. When you believe the good news of what Jesus has done for you, how good is Jesus? How amazing is this love? How can you remain in your unbelief and ingratitude when you're awakened to an understanding of just how much Jesus loves you? When you finally apprehend just what he did for you on that cross, we're forgiven. Baptism pictures forgiveness. The washing away of sin. Let's move on to the the third and final spiritual reality that's portrayed in baptism, and that is triumph. Verse 15, When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. In a paradox, what looked like Jesus' defeat and the victory of the spiritual forces, these rulers and authorities, what looked like a a victory for them over and against Jesus, it was actually Jesus' means of achieving victory over these demonic spirit beings. Jesus' death satisfied God's necessary work of judging and condemning sin in mankind, while at the same time freeing all of those held captive by the evil one in the domain of darkness heard and believed the gospel. These evil spirits, these evil beings, the enemies of God's people are now disarmed or disgraced. You can translate it either way. It means to be stripped of power and authority. The Colossians were now out of the jurisdiction of those spirit beings. And just like them, we are totally shielded and secure out of the jurisdiction of any spiritual beings or forces that would overtake us or harm us ever again. Paul said in Romans eight thirty-seven to 39, in all these things we are overwhelmingly conquering through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers. He's talking about spiritual powers here, guys, just like he is in Colossians. Nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will ever be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not only did he disarm them, he humiliated them. He put them on a public display. And this picture is a Roman general leading a defeated enemy in a triumphal parade through the city of Rome. And as the general is praised by the adoring crowds, the conquered foes are disgraced and humiliated. They throw rotten tomatoes at them or whatever it may be. This is what Jesus did when he died on the cross and he rose from the grave. Not only were our spiritual enemies defeated and disarmed, they were disgraced. Proving once and for all that there's none like Jesus, none worthy of our love and devotion but Him. Jesus triumphed over them through the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ in the empty tomb that followed is the greatest triumph in human history. Amen. And when believers in Jesus obey Christ in baptism, they reenact history's greatest triumph over evil that ever occurred. And the forces of evil are shamed yet again in another soul snatched from the domain of darkness, yeah. entering into the kingdom of the beloved Son. So let me ask you, were you there? Were you there? If we're to believe in Paul and his message here in these verses in Colossians, then we must conclude that those who respond to this message of good news in Jesus, victory, when they respond in faith, we were there. He says very clearly that when we received Christ, verse 6, Romans 6, 6 tells us that our old self was crucified with Him. When we believed and we were buried with Him in a spiritual baptism that this physical baptism portrays, When we received Christ, we were raised with Him. Thus, Paul is saying that the spiritual reality of what baptism portrays is such that when one responds to the message of the Gospel, it's as if they are transported back to the very events that that baptism commemorates, the cross of Jesus Christ and His empty tomb. Sometimes it causes me to tremble to tremble, to tremble. We ponder the cross and our hearts and our spirits tremble like the earth that shook that day at Calvary. We see Him breathe His last and the breath of God's Holy Spirit comes into us to fill us. We hear him cry out, my God, why have you forsaken me? And at that very moment, we feel the Father's embrace and welcoming of us. We hear him say, it is finished. And at that very moment, our new life in him begins. Were you there? Were you there? If not, will you go there with us this morning as we go back? there today and celebrate the humble symbol of the most glorious triumph in human history. Will you see the glory and goodness of Jesus Christ crucified for your sins, buried and risen again for you as you see these young ones proclaim that good news to you as they're baptized? Let's pray. Father in heaven, I am... uh, I am humbled and I marvel at the work of your spirit through your word and through um, your guidance. And Father, and for the work that you have done in saving and snatching the souls of these young ones who have decided and expressed their desire to be baptized this morning. So Father in heaven, I just come before you, Lord Jesus, thanking you so much that you... Still carry us along by your word. I thank you, God, for the beautiful realities that are portrayed in this baptism, that we're, these baptisms we're going to see this morning. The spiritual reality of resurrection, of forgiveness, the spiritual reality of triumph. Lord Jesus, I pray no one would leave today without having heard and received the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray in his name. Amen.